to start talking to you about Albert Eiler who played the piece Ghosts in that set and I have to say I would encourage you to do a solo record of Eiler tunes because that was burning. Um, Eiler is kind of a pivotal figure in the jazz history but what I wanted to talk about actually were some bass players in that period of the 60s and in particular Gary Peacock, Henry Grimes and Charlie Hayden with Peacock and Grimes making this transition between chord changes, bass, jazz, to very open material with Eiler or Cecil Taylor. And had, were they influences for you at all in terms of how you've approached those two things? Because I know you play changes based stuff sometimes, but you know, more open music. Uh, have you thought about that transition? Because it's like a seismic transition in, in going from chord structures to like the removal of those and the basis for pivotal and making that change in jazz. Yeah, I'm one answer. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean uh, it's those records um, live at um, oh, the, the Dutch. Um, uh, oh, Montmartre. No, no, no. Um, is that the trio? So the Marie Peacock and Eiler. Uh, the Hilversum session. Oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. That's the one record I listened so much to, and and uh, I got into Peacock through uh, Kit Jarrett in my early days, like when I was at school, and I was more into traditional. I mean, st standards was kind of where I, uh, or chord changes, kind of based jazz. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I got mm -hmm. caught by like. Super, I wanted to figure that out, but I always had like an idea that must be possible to to kind of widen it a little bit without knowing exactly what I meant about that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then I heard Gary Peacock, um, and that was like the first. Okay, all right, there mm -hmm. is some um, some people that have done this, and then hearing him with the peak with the Euler in those at that time those sessions is just ah uh, yeah it's incredible. Like how how much life it is in the, but it's kind of based in the very kind of coming from Scotland far away way like mm -hmm. the chord changes and the melodic lines are so like still represented but he takes it a step further and just like mm -hmm. open that up and I've always been extremely uh, inspired by that mm. uh, maybe Scotland far was like the first in that terms. And then I heard like his followers kind of, mm -hmm. but again, I'm going back again to before Lafaro or like in the period around that, I mean, period around that time, but then also everything that Grimes did, like the, mm -hmm. for example, school day session is yeah. like one huge, like, whoa, yeah. how he managed to do exactly what you say, like keep the, the place as a bass player and hold down somehow the frames and the changes, but kind of keeping it totally open. Mm -hmm. And with it, with the fact that like Grimes and Peacock were people that were really capable of dealing with functional harmony and jazz, the fact that they also moved outside of those frameworks, 
did that make it easier for you to make the jump in, in hearing it? Because you said, okay, these guys can, can play changes. So they all, they do have conventional skills. So if they're playing outside of those changes now, uh, it, it was like a rationalization maybe, or a way to understand what they were doing. Whereas like a bass player that didn't have that background, it might've been harder to get to where they were with the playing. Do you know what I mean? Like hearing, let's say Alan Silva out of the blue mm -hmm. at the same time, cause mm -hmm. we were talking when you were like a late teenager, when you started exploring this stuff. Yeah. Like early twenties, early twenties. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And like, I mean, maybe hearing someone like that play, who's a tremendous bassist, but maybe without the conventional background, it might've yeah. been hard to get to what he was doing initially. I mean, now obviously you're talking about a different situation. Yeah, and I think you're right. It was, uh, yeah, when, you, when you're at school, you go study jazz and all this. Still, I was in a school that had very open, mm -hmm. uh, like the strategy was very open, which mm -hmm. was great. But still, I mean, you were there to, I was kind of set to study jazz. That's what I wanted to do, figure it out. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, you're right. Uh, even bass players that obviously, oh shit, hearing them play that material in the same time just opened it up. Like the mm -hmm. first time I heard Scott Lofaro, that was how I was, even if he wasn't even taking it that far out, but it was just his expression and his like freedom mm -hmm. within the frames that just caught me. And these were the, the records with Bill Evans yeah, and Paul yeah, Washington, yeah, the early, trio yeah, records? The, yeah. talk a little bit about Charlie Hayden's playing on the uh, the Ornette Coleman classic uh, Atlantic sides yeah. you know when he really went to the group with Billy Higgins and Blackwell and Cherry because to me I mean and it's not at all pulling anything from the genius of Ornette Coleman and what he contributes to the history on all, so many different kinds of levels but without having a bassist like Charlie Hayden that could navigate the open harmony and it is, it's got tonality to it and whatever. He can follow the solos, he can follow Ornette. Uh, the music is totally different than, let's say, the, the contemporary records with, with Percy Heath playing bass. Right. And those are great records too, but it's a totally different game. It's a, it, he changes everything, uh, Hayden. I mean, can you talk a little bit about how you think about playing that kind of music? And if it has something to do with the way Hayden approached it, or if you could talk a little bit about his breakthroughs and how he, you think he was able to do that or heard hmm. that. Yeah, actually, because that, um, I can talk about when well, the first time I heard Charlie Hayden, um, I heard him with Gary Allen, just like a backstory. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, I was not prepared. And it was at the Mold, the Jazz Fest. I was probably, before I started studying, I was like trying to figure out what, what all this was and I heard him play with uh, two with Gary Allen and Paul Morrison actually mm. and I remember I got really um, like 
why? How can you do that? <laughs> I got provoked. I remember the feeling, and I didn't even you know know much about the music, but he really provoked me. Like what? What about it? Because he just played like super dumb, like the temp half tempo or like like it wasn't that flashy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't think more about it more than like who's this guy. <laughs> <laughs> But then I ended up writing my thesis at the academy about Charlie Hayden. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's an interesting trajectory. <laughs> <laughs> no, he, I was completely like taken by it. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And then you start get, getting into it and you hear his extreme like oversight of, uh, which I think comes from his like very family tradition. He was singing when he was a little kid and like mm-hmm. he had like a, somehow the, somehow a very like, he could hear chord changes and this, the overall like melodic structures in a lot of music, I think. Mm-hmm. So that was like something that was easy for him. But how he applied that to playing with Coleman was just incredible. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I try. I remember transcribing lines and just being really shocked by how like the choices he made <laughs> on like uh, rhythm changes and whatever, like these basic like jazz standard changes. And he just managed to open it up but with such easy simple tools mm-hmm. like the like i was just wow uh, i thought it was supposed to be much like harder and it's like the hardest thing to do <laughs> of course but how he um can you give an example of the way in a way he would open it up like playing the same note for like not a couple of bars and that note actually have a relationship to the chords Mm-hmm. But it's just like it sounds completely like why does it just play the same note and then you hear it and you the, the attention behind it is just like still mm-hmm. harmonic melodically you hear that note mm-hmm. but the chords just pass by and you know yeah so he's creating another level of rhythmic tension within the line in a sense yeah rhythmic and melodic and he managed then to move from note to note in a way that's very uh, seldom to hear mm-hmm. so very freely but also very. And it opened up to me at least, like, oh, I want to figure out how to do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, and especially, yeah, f- I think for most of them being like incredible uh, early Bonnet band, when they tried to figure this out, they played those standard changes and they mm-hmm. tried to open it up. But it seemed like to be a perfect fit with all them trying to move somehow yeah, yeah. same direction. Yeah, because the record with Paul Blake you're talking about. The- no, I recorded records too, but yeah, uh-huh. the. the um, but how they actually played standard changes a lot, mm-hmm. but you don't really think too much about that. Yeah, yeah it doesn't. <laughs> that's not what I if, am feeling when I hear that. Right. Music at all. <laughs> like coming out of a, a background that wasn't necessarily connected to jazz because you come from a really small town in Norway like pretty much in the mountains right yeah 
And how did you end up getting interested? I mean, did you have people in your family who were musicians or something that led you to wanting to explore the jazz? Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, my father was an organ player and he was... Actually, I remember just recently, all of a sudden I got his memory. He took me to a um, Garbaric concert at the cinema in Opdal. (laughs) Him and uh, Tulik Gurtu. Duo. (laughs) And there was hardly any people there. Yeah. I remember he took, we were there listening to Iron Man. Like what year would this be roughly? <sighs> Probably I was like 12, 13 or something. Okay, so like what year for us that don't know your current age, what would that be? <laughs> what? Like what year oh. in, in the grand scheme of the 20th century? I was just talking century. about what year it was. <laughs> not, okay. what, not what year you were. <laughs> like um, when you were 12, early what? 80s. Early 80s, okay. okay. Kind of, yeah. Okay. When Garbark still was... Open. Yeah, he wasn't becoming mainstream or anything, but but, but yeah, but uh, but there were, he was an organ player and it was always music, but it was very church related, so mm-hmm. I never felt very connected to it, mm-hmm. and uh, I kind of wanted to get away. I was, yeah, but it was always music, so I guess I I realized in like the second win of that was that you okay I actually heard a lot of music mm-hmm. in upbringing a lot of that was like the, the functional harmonic you know kind yeah, of hymns and things like this things yeah so did you pick up bass like early or how did you gravitate to the bass yeah it was a coincidence really at the huh. choir they needed a bass player and they just want you and like oh okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean you were like I started playing tall? guitar <laughs> yeah I was yeah, 14 maybe oh you're playing electric bass Electric. Oh, okay. oh yeah, okay. yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't know what acoustic was. So oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. All right, so you're playing electric bass when you're 14 in this choir, and then you go to Trondheim to study jazz. Well, I went to this kind of what they call the Folkehögskole in Norway. It's like one year kind of boarding school between high school and before college. Okay. It's very lot of people do it. It's a private thing. Uh, you pay a little bit, and you have one year where you just trying to figure out what the heck to do next. Mm-hmm. And I ended up at one of those and it was a music focus on it. Was that a choice that it was music focused or just mm. by chance? It was, it was kind of by chance it. because my parents put me there because it was a Christian school. Oh, <laughs> and look what happened. <laughs> look what happened. <laughs> <laughs> oh really, so just by coincidence you end up in this, this, this interim school. Kind of, then, yeah. Then. I was actually thinking of uh, starting an education in um, the home village I'm from, one of the biggest industries is stone. You're making, it's called shifer. It's okay. this particular stone in Norway that it's very flat and you have surfaces and floors and like stoves and so stuff. So doing stone work, that was what you were thinking? I was thinking, oh, maybe I should do that. <laughs> wow. And then I ended up at this school and I just met this most amazing teachers and they just fired me up and that was it really. Okay. Oh, wow. And then, and then was it like a clear choice to go to Trondheim? Because that's a well-established job. Because my teacher had just oh. went there. Oh, okay. So without even knowing what I was putting myself into, I just decided <laughs> to, oh, I'm going to go there. Okay. And then okay. I didn't give up. And I, after trying three times, I got it. <laughs> oh, so you, you kept applying? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. And now, for me, as an outsider who met you and Paul Nilsson Love and Hovart Vik later, um, the fact that all three of you were at the same school at the same time, that's where you guys met, right? Yeah, we met actually at this jazz school mm. that summer before I started school. They they went the two years after me, 
Oh, okay. Oh, so you were ahead of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that big, okay. But we met at that time before I started school. And I mean, at, at that time too, I just remember meeting both of them. And they were like the biggest nerds, both of them. Like walking around almost like with a record stack of CDs and mm-hmm. always talking about music. And they're both from like very... Um, I mean, you, you know, Paul, obviously, his background with his family, jazz club and all this. And, and Howard, I think, he just been like buying CDs online since it was two years. <laughs> so, so for me, I was like, oh, wow, this is uh, intense. Mm-hmm. And you, you guys had a group together called Element, right? Yeah. That's and, That's a, and it was kind of like a Coltrane-inspired group, sort of? Very much. Yeah. The Coltrane Quartet's like early 60s kind of uh, focused the, the saxophone player was that was all he was listening to mm-hmm. so yeah but it was ex- very very important I think for all of us because we were rehearsing he had this uh, little farm in the woods a little bit outside Oslo mm-hmm. so we went there in the weekends and we just played like, yeah night eve, eve early mornings and uh, played all the time and tried to figure out and I remember like this feeling of frustration you know, like uh, how to get you know get it sound like it's supposed to like you had the references I never heard it before but when I heard it I was oh shit how to make this work I mean, you mean in terms of like playing the bass yeah yeah like the, the, in that funct- functional kind of this what Garrison was doing yeah the like tunes was very like similar to that those kind of songs mm-hmm. like the f- terms of form and it was model and mm-hmm. it was all about like getting that that same feeling but it was extremely I think important for all of us just to have that period of like a weirdness and focus and like all this intensity from this mm-hmm. guy and, <laughs> and that was the first group you guys worked together yeah, yeah and like in terms of chronological time what years were those that was uh, <laughs> 92 I guess 93 okay to 97 and oh really yeah okay because we met like in what, established musician based in Norway doing a lot of work in Europe touring in the States as well why did you choose to move to Chicago and that would have been in 2000 what 2007 five no oh you're right well just not fun no 2000 uh, late just not five yeah okay. yeah exactly I mean, it's a big change, like moving to a new country, Yeah. Uh, I mean, coming to the United States, which is maybe even more screwed up now than it was then, but it was certainly no 
piece of cake. I mean, what drove you to come to Chicago for musical reasons? Let's keep it to like you know, music. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's always you know. Yeah, it is always. Yeah. yeah. But it was always. I mean, it was, Chicago was always uh, something I was. Oh, I mean, after meeting you and being introduced to the scene, and I was very curious to. It was something that had draw me for sure. Like mm-hmm. that that aspect of moving here was. And what was it about the scene here? Let's say compared to Oslo, that, that yeah. drew you to it, that made it different and exciting. I mean. I was really surprised by the openness and the kindness mm. of the scene. Just so like welcoming and so. Uh, I mean, you when you live in Europe and you haven't been to the US, you have a very specific idea of what America is about. And it's super positive, right? <laughs> very positive. No, but you know that's the funny thing. People love the US in Europe. Absolutely, it's like everything is inspired by it, but nobody wants to admit that. It's a love hate, yeah. with an emphasis on And then it's also the love to like, oh, it's fucked up, oh, all this, all the time. But I, that's natural, it's like psychology and human, mm-hmm. human beings. But uh, just seeing a scene that I was kind of familiar with and then just feeling like, oh, this is exciting and people are really... I guess that the um, social politics is also a very interesting aspect. When you're from a country that have, you know, it's pretty extremely well-functioning country that funds music and arts, like almost 2%, I think, at some point, from the national gross. 2% goes to the arts. It did until, I think, some years ago when it was more and more conservative government taking over again. And then but, it, it's, but they still fund. <laughs> but it's still, yeah. to be the, the, the amount of people living in the country, it's just five millions, yeah, there is fundings to, mm-hmm. to make stuff happening. And that's like, the more, the longer I live here, you, you realize like how, ex- yeah, how amazing that is. Because you've noticed there isn't a whole lot of funding here. It is funding. <laughs> it exists. It exists, but it's hidden really, really well. Yeah. <laughs> and you were in Chicago for four years? Five? How long? Uh, two and a half. Two and a half. Yeah, okay. like okay. more or less. Okay. Months, but... And then you went to Austin. Yeah, then I went back to Norway and then I moved to Austin. And I've been there for nine years now. Nine? Wow. Yeah. Okay. I got to admit that when you said you were going to Austin and picturing this guy who grew up in a little village in Norway, of all places in the universe, Austin, Texas seemed like an interesting place to stop. And I'm telling you, <laughs> I got depression when I moved to Chicago because it's so flat and yeah. it's so... But Austin always seemed much more like what I'm used to in terms of like the demographics Geography and the... And the yeah, okay. yeah. It's, it was a very interesting, but I remember the first time in Austin, I was like, oh, this seems familiar somehow. Oh, that's interesting. We, yeah, it's weird. You wouldn't think that, but it's, it actually is. I do remember that in, I think, April, you told me that you were really worried about how hot it was, and I said, wait until <laughs> August. <laughs> so, but you're used to yeah, that now. It's cool. I remember the first months I was there, I, was, I, I actually walked out of the house and wanted to, like, because I love the sun, and I thought, oh, this is great, sun, oh. Cool. I go out in the sun, and then my my wife or ex-wife to be, whatever. But it's she was just telling me, why do you why do you go out? Why why? 
because and then after a couple of months I realized mm, it's broke. It's yeah, you're sunburned. Never, it didn't stop. In a weird way, I wanted to connect this to another piece that you played in your solo set, which was a Don Cherry composition, and that was amazing as well. Um, I find Don Cherry to be a really interesting figure. Uh, the emphasis often is on Ornette Coleman in terms of that set of history with, with the, him being in that band. And Ornette's music is super open, and he did many different kinds of things like prime time and whatnot. Um, but Don Cherry is one of the first figures that took the international factor of what jazz became in the mid to late 60s and what it remains and traveled around, like lived in Sweden for a long time, you know, uh, worked with musicians from Turkey, you know, um, traveled a lot in Africa, brought instruments back. And he integrated aspects of international music with his, let's say, jazz history and created hybrids that really work as music, that they're not like dumbed down world music, uh, patronizing, whatever. It's like celebrates the different cultures and puts them together, which is even now a highly rare thing to occur. Right. Yeah. A, and I think it's kind of interesting that, okay, there's not a lot of music. I know a lot of musicians that travel a lot. And they maybe move to different places in the country they're from, or maybe now that the EU's been established for a while, they might move to different places within the EU. But you're one of the only musicians I know that moved completely to a different part of the world. And then you're also, I know, doing a fair amount of stuff in Mexico City and have a lot of interest with the musicians there. And I just wonder, like, do you think about that your personal history and how these different cultures have affected the way you play? I mean, clearly Don Cherry moving around and living in different places affected the way he made his music. Do you feel that there's been impact on yours or do you feel like, okay, you were your, let's say, aesthetic realm was developed loosely in Norway and then you came here and you brought that to what you were doing and maybe were influenced by things? Or do you feel like it really had a pronounced impact? And now let's say, you know, playing with people in Mexico City, has this changed you again or is it not so dramatic? Yeah, it's not that dramatic. Mm -hmm. It's more... Um, mm. Well, I mean, I guess I'm in a situation which is rare too because I all, at the same time, I'm, I left my country and I lived in the country. The other country has long known that it, I'm, I, sometimes I'm thinking like, oh, if I'm not moving back soon, I'm, I'm going to be, it's kind of, you know, it, it's, it's a certain point you realize that, yeah, I've, I understand this culture more and, you know, you get situated in the culture of that. So, do you want to go back? Would you have to take a choice? But 
aside of that, I'm, I'm, I'm always touring with my bands that I had for such a long time mm -hmm. in Europe and Norway. So I always get that connection. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing. If I didn't have that, I'm not sure if I would be able to see uh, the things the way I'm seeing it. And because I always have a kind of a connection to something that is like my roots. Mm -hmm. through so kind of a balance between the two. Yeah, the roots of my friends and music that I've been so and we still do on a uh, uh, regular basis. But aside of that too, like what you asked about meeting people and new cultures and it's more like this, like I feel like I'm getting closer to understanding music that I always, or like exploring new music too, but getting a bigger understanding of music that I always been loving somehow. Mm -hmm. like. Um, getting a little deeper into the understanding of of the cultural aspect of jazz in the U.S. how how it's been affecting the music and how it how important it is to get under the skin of that if you're gonna fully mm -hmm. understand like why people do this and that and and then for Mexico and and even Colombia like the getting into a culture which is again very different. Mm -hmm. and uh, musically you, you explore and you hear music but it's so exciting like the music and the, the, all the aspects of it so far from like where I'm from but at the same time it feels very familiar and exciting and it I think it affects your overall just like I think it make, gives you more freedom over a long time because mm -hmm. you realize that okay it's only music <laughs> mm -hmm. so you, find, you find the things in these different cultures that you can initially latch on to and then they pull you deeper into the culture it gives you a better understanding of where the music's coming from and gives you more possibilities within the music right yeah I, I mean I'm I, I feel terrible that I don't speak Spanish yet that's a, like a big I, I kick myself for not but anyway that's the I feel like music have a similar like you can you meet people everywhere I mean you know all about that and you but it's also an understanding of a culture in a way in that and by music yeah mm -hmm. and the people that play it yeah yeah that's an interesting point i just played with an amazing second player in mexico city has been been having a club and they've been doing free music for like the last 30 years um and it's like the same thing i hardly speak english but i mean i mean just communication was just immediately mm -hmm. but and and those people exist
But uh, you mentioned like, okay, uh, these connections in, in Mexico and Colombia and obviously elsewhere in the United States, Europe. You're programming a festival now. This year will be the third, third one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what motivated you to, to do that? That's a huge undertaking and the funding in the U.S. is much more difficult than Norway. Um, I mean, a lot of musicians I know are also organizers, you know, mm -hmm. putting on either concert series or shows or, you know, assisting on that side of the, the fence, let's say. What motivated you to do that? Hmm. Also kind of a coincidence in a one way, because I had I had my group in, uh, the, in Texas, uh, Young Mothers, which is a melting pot of very gender of like cross gender uh, musicians in the band. So I, I wanted to some of future giving people understand why the heck we had this band and by well, presenting in that group what are the genres you, you kind of put together like you have Joe Wad from Houston very connected to the hip hop scene in Houston and that's that's what he's doing like if his career that's like his thing and but he's also an improviser and you have Gonzalez that from Dallas that's uh, like grindcore uh, like metal drummer mm -hmm. yeah but he's also rooted in jazz uh, and it's like Jason Jackson from Houston, which is also the saxophone player, like in three days scene. But but all of us uh, kind of connected on a very like similar like through improvised music and and wanted to figure out how we could you know melt this <coughs> these different backgrounds. Yeah, and but for real, not like uh, like oh you're gonna make a band and have all this, but for for real, like really like have everybody have have a voice and. So I thought maybe to to um, some of future everybody's band would make people understand what you were doing. In that. Yeah, yeah, and then at the same time it was this. It's also actually do have city fundings and uh, I have a friend that have started to to do application for musicians. So I asked if I wanted to jump on that. So we got funding for a festival, and then that's it. Mm -hmm. Was the start of it, and now it's the third. But if I if I knew what it takes and what it meant, I I would never have done this. <laughs> <laughs> but but you're gonna do another one anyway. Yeah yeah yeah. No, it's fun too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of the masochistic aspect. Yes, okay. exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, cool. Does anyone have any questions for Mr. Hawkeflat? Um, about your experience of playing solo as opposed to playing in other contexts. Um, I mean, we've had other very well-known improvisers who have shown, for example, that they were anxious about the experience of playing solo or kind of fearing that. Uh, how, how does it feel for you? Is this a, a format you feel comfortable with? Um, you seem very comfortable, but that doesn't necessarily mean that before playing or you can have anxieties about it. <laughs> Panic attacks. Exactly. <laughs> no, it's. Uh, I. I think it's very exciting and challenging in a very, very good way to be put in that spot. And it's something that I don't. I never would put myself into. Almost like I. I like playing with people. That's part of what I like with music. I like that conversation and the feeling of like. Uh, yeah, the communication aspect is really important for me. At the same time, solo, it can be extremely exciting to explore your instrument and you finally can dig into some aspect of the bass that you never ever have a chance to, like, playing with a group because of just the sonic aspects of it. So that's something I really dig. 
and then it gives you a chance to really work on specific things, kind of figure that out. So I, I like it. It's I guess it's a really it's a love hate thing, but uh, it's probably sixty forty now, sixty love and forty hate. So I <laughs> <laughs> I I'm I'll, yeah I just recorded this whole album and it, I found it very interesting to explore what can and be done. And you played uh, acoustic and electric. On and electric, yes. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. artist who uh, studied the music of the Kanawa as well as some of the music of Mali and I was wondering uh, you've spoken before about being interested in the music of Morocco and Marrakesh what about that uh, kind of uh, Gimburi music is appealing oh I love it and Christy Boutin uh, yeah I mean that is, that's a very important aspect I remember when I heard Gnawa the first time and uh, just, I can't remember who was playing it for me, but it was like even that gimbri, the instrument, another probably 10 goats that goes into that instrument. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just the sound and the feeling and like the, it's a, it's a different aspect of music, but I'm very attracted to like the, you can call it spiritual and then not talking religion, I'm talking spiritual aspects of things you can't really put your finger on, but it's a, um, when people go into trance, when they like festivals with Gnawa music, they go into trance and they keep on for hours and hours. And that aspect of music really fascinates me. So I've been trying now for a while to go to Marrakesh and study, but I have very bad luck with the communication to set up and get it like verified, but it's going to happen at some point. But it's, uh, it's an instrument that I feel really somehow connected to. Maybe because of the sound of the gut strings too, and it has some similarities. I feel like, okay. And of course, William Parker, I remember, he was, I heard him play at some point, and he gave me a gimbri, and he oh, like, wow. which I didn't follow much up on then because I, but it's something very fascinating. And, and Christy Boutin, the Swedish uh, bass player, player, that also, he's kind of, he's a master, gimbri master. He went to, Marrakesh when he was maybe 20 and they just stayed there <laughs> and hanged out and played with the guys and, and learned and picked it up and now he's considered a master. Mm -hmm. So festivals in, in Marrakesh or wherever, I mean in Morocco they call him down there and he goes and play. Wow, that's great. Yeah. Because yeah. so he, he taught Cherry some stuff when he, Don Cherry He taught Cherry the Mopti. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
But there have been Mats Gustafsson have this band New Ensemble and, and Christel Botten is part of that. One version of the New Ensemble. And he plays Game Boy at some point. And me and him have a duo at that point. And I'm super excited. Jump on it and play with him. And think this, oh, this is great. <laughs> just hold down like, uh, you know, fifth D and it's perfect. It lays on the bass and you can just play around that. And then after he just came up to me like, oh, you can't do that. It's... Uh, I get stomach aches. This is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is no. So come here, come here. So I had to like, I had to go backstage with him, and and then like, because it's all about where on the beats your rhythmic phrasing are. Mm. If you're on the, it's kind of stomping on the one and three while playing jazz, or I mean like the, the, the <laughs> like the feeling like the two and four of one and three and all that like how things are considered funky or swinging or but it's very specific in that tradition extremely specific so he told me like i get stomach aches you have to change that <laughs> so, <laughs> but then he kind of managed to thought me like that uh, that phrase at least mm -hmm. and then when you got it right it was literal like uh, some kind of different universe opened up like oh shit like, right. rhythmically yeah, it just had like endless possibilities and that's what's happening mm -hmm. and they keep on doing that for hours and hours and people go into trance and yeah it's a different uh, thing that I really want to dig more into <laughs>